Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, we spotlight an important new study by epidemiologist Joseph Mangano on the cancer statistics in counties directly adjacent to the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in Northern California. Nuclear Hot Seat talks with Dr. Jerry Brown, director of the Safe Energy Project for the Santa Barbara-based World Business Academy, which commissioned the report. Plus, we continue special coverage of the radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and again hear from Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center. Those interviews, plus Numbnuts of the Week and the Radcast Radiation Weather Report, will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 4, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. The Valentine's Day radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, in Carlsbad, New Mexico, remains at the top of our awareness. Plutonium and americium were released from the only nuclear waste repository in the U.S., one that was supposed to last for thousands of years, but now has had its first serious accident only 15 years after it was created. The facility is still shut down, And while the Department of Energy has consistently claimed that the radiation leak presents no threat to the environment or to humans, there continues to be tremendous concern in the local community and by watchdog groups. Nuclear Hot Seat has covered this problem extensively in our previous two episodes, number 139 and 140. Now to get the latest information on WIP, we again reach out to Don Hancock, of Southwest Research and Information Center in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Don, since we spoke last week, we've learned that 13 employees at the WIP site are confirmed as having been exposed to the radiation release that happened earlier in February. What can you tell us about this? Well, there's not a lot of information that's out. Apparently, every single worker that was on the site when... The alarm was triggered late night on Valentine's Day, February 14th, uh, received internal dose. Subsequently, and it shouldn't have happened, but other workers came to the site on Saturday morning, February 15th. DOE was still saying there had been no release, no contamination of any kind, and so workers, in my view, shouldn't have been coming on Saturday morning, but they did. And Probably some additional workers were contaminated then. We don't know whether that really is true. We do know that a number of those workers are having bioassay tests done to see whether there are radionuclides within them. The results of that should come out in the next week or so, but that was a totally unnecessary risk that the managers of the facility took by letting other workers come. 
So it's a serious problem, despite the original claims that there was no release and no contamination. Obviously, that was wrong. So we now have a number of workers, at least 13, with confirmed internal radiation. So that bodes the possibility of some serious uh, health consequences for those workers down the line. The point being also that those 13 employees were above ground when the leak happened. They were not underground. Correct. There was nobody underground when the detection alarm trigger was triggered. There was nobody underground, and there hasn't been anybody underground since before the alarm was triggered, and we don't know yet when some few workers will be allowed to go underground to see what they can see once they go underground. There's a map that has been doing the rounds. It's gone a bit viral online showing a radiation plume coming out from the WIP site in Carlsbad and extending into Texas and Oklahoma. I'm wondering if you have seen that. My question being, how valid do you think that map is? In general, it's impossible to tell how valid it is because we don't know what the input was, whether it was assuming there were three particles of americium and plutonium coming out or 300 or 3,000 or 3 million or whatever. So it doesn't have a context to it. It also, the modeling is based on the release happening 50 meters in the air, and I don't know how the person running the model, I don't know what evidence there is that that actually occurred. I know of no evidence at this point that the radionuclides went that much into the air, and so presumably, as with all models, if you used a different input and a different height, you would get a very different result. So the Department of Energy is running their own models, which they say don't show anything like this. I'm not suggesting that the Department of Energy's models are accurate because I haven't seen them and I don't know that. But I think what we really need to have rather than dealing with models is there needs to be, which we've been advocating from the beginning, there needs to be extensive soil sampling taken to determine how far radioactivity has spread. That will give us some indications. That will finally determine where it all is, of course, but that will give us a much better indication of how the radionuclides actually did spread, how far they are away from the WIP site, if at all, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm much more interested in seeing in detailed soil sampling than I am in seeing the various air dispersion models that people can run. I read a quote from Scott Kovac of Nuclear Watch New Mexico. He said in this quote, there are four ways for air to get to the surface from the WIP site. The exhaust shaft, the salt shaft, the air intake shaft, and the waste handling shaft, but only the exhaust shaft has a filter put into place, and that was the one that actually triggered the alarm, but that the monitor is 2,000 feet away from the shaft, which implies that there was quite a considerable radiation leak. Again, these are among the things that we don't really know. If the ventilation system was working correctly, which DOE has consistently saying it was, all of the release, however long and however extensive it was, would have gone out the exhaust shaft. It is correct that the only one of the four shafts that's monitored is the exhaust shaft. That's because the way the 
ventilation system works, all of the air is supposed to go out that exhaust shaft. So that's why we're all still assuming, and until there is data to show otherwise, that's the logical assumption that everything went out the exhaust shaft and traveled from there. So what that means is, yes, there could be extensive contamination in the underground if, and again, these are all things that are assumptions at this point that we don't know for sure, but if the release happened in panel 7, it happened at an area about 1,500 feet from where that air monitor is that was triggered. Then the air would have gone another 2,000 feet, about 2,000 feet underground to get to the exhaust shaft, and then it would have gone up the exhaust shaft 2,150 feet, and then it would have gone out. We know, because there have been samples that have detected plutonium and americium that are at a monitor about 325 feet from the exhaust shaft and at about 3,000 feet from the exhaust shaft. So there are those locations, because those are the locations where there are air monitors, we have confirmation that there's plutonium and americium at those sites. There haven't been any results released yet about the amount of contaminants found in the filters. There are samples that have been taken, but the results haven't been released. don't have any results of soil samples on the surface that would give us a better idea of what came out and where it went. So there's still a lot that we don't know. The perspective from outside is the suspicion that the DOE, the EPA, that the government agencies have been clamping down on information and spinning it to distract the media and thus the public from ongoing concerns. What's your experience as to how the information flow is being handled? Uh, it's being handled poorly, which is typical of how the Department of Energy operates. So, yes, we need a lot more information. We need a lot more data. As I've said, it was irresponsible for the Department of Energy and the operating contractor to have workers come on the morning of February 15th when they knew that there had been a radiation alarm, even if they thought, as they said, that there wasn't any leak. There's no way they should have allowed more workers to come on site. And they said for four days that there hadn't been a release until air monitors showed that there had been a release on the surface. It took them almost 12 days to notify the 13 workers that were at the site on February 14th that they had internal contamination. So all of those things are very bad practices, and they demonstrate that the government hasn't been accurate in what it has said, which is why we need data to confirm what is or isn't the case. So the information flow has been bad. I know of nobody that thinks that the information flow has been good. I was just on the phone in the last half hour with the New Mexico Secretary of the Environment Department, um, the state official who is uh, most responsible for the state's activities at the website, and he was saying he is still totally unsatisfied with the lack of information that the Department of Energy is giving he and his regulatory agency, not to mention the further lack of information that the public is getting. So um, I, I, I don't know anybody um, that, that's defending the, the lack of information. 
Um, it, the information that's, that is known should be made available, including, for example, the meteorological data, So, which there is an on-site meteorological station at the WIPS site so that we could know what the air speeds and velocities have been at the time uh, that the alarm was triggered and since then. So, you know, that would help. Uh, make more accurate uh, maps as well as better determine where initial areas of soil sampling should occur. All of those things are true, uh, but it's also true that a lot of the information, what, what what the direct cause of the release was, how much was released, where it is, um, how many further workers have been contaminated, what the serious health effects that workers that have been contaminated, and many other things, no one knows the answer to those questions. The data from the meteorological site at the WIPS site, is that usually made available real-time or with only a short time lag? It's never been made available real-time. Um, it's, 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 the data is captured in the control room at the WIP site. And so it is available if, for example, the regulatory agency, the New Mexico Environment Department wants to see it or, or something like that. So, so it, no, it has never been made available in real time, but, but it exists and it shouldn't be difficult for the Department of Energy to have released that information. They have not done so. Presumably, they're plugging it into the modeling that they say that they're doing about air dispersion. And again, I'm not suggesting that their modeling is correct and anybody else's modeling is not correct. All models are inaccurate by definition. Uh, some models provide some useful information, and it would be nice to know what the inputs are in the models and what the outputs are so people could have a better ability to judge the relative accuracy uh, of the various modeling that is being done. There will be plenty more. As I say, there's still a lot more that we need to know that's unknown than what we do know. So this is going to be a continuing issue for months to come at least. That was Don Hancock at Southwest Research and Information Center. A few additional pieces on this story. Arnie Gunderson. Chief Engineer at Nuclear Safety Advocacy Organization Fairwinds.org and a former nuclear plant executive turned whistleblower said that the Department of Energy's tight lips may be a sign that the leak is bigger than originally thought. Gunderson said, There are signs they're playing keep away with data. We need to know what they measured for. They're only giving us half the numbers. Gunderson said officials are likely conducting a slew of tests that they are not disclosing to the public. He said the fact that radiation is being detected 3,000 feet away from the site suggests that the leak is large. Regarding the Department of Energy's position, at a Thursday news conference, Carlsbad Field Office Manager Joe Franco of the DOE admitted that the department is not, quote, 100% certain, but is pretty sure The surrounding population centers are safe. Regarding the DOE's penchant to compare the radiation risks experienced by those exposed workers to a chest X-ray, Arnie Gunderson told Common Dreams that this comparison doesn't work. He said, The difference is that the X-ray is broadly distributed externally over a large piece of mass. On the other hand, 
The radioactivity in the air is in a particulate form that can deposit in your lungs. Radioactive material is attracted to your lung tissue. What you breathe in does not come out. This DOE comparison does not take into account the internal exposure these people receive. He went on to point out that it happens routinely when workers are contaminated that they bring that radiation home. The families of the workers need to have their homes tested as soon as possible. And the United Steel Workers is sending in a team of International Safety Department scientists to take samples and test workers at the WIP facility. Go Union! Of the 13 workers already found to be contaminated with radiation, Rick Fuentes, president of the United Steelworkers District 12, said, The Carlsbad chapter of the United Steelworkers is baffled as to why the Department of Energy and the Nuclear Waste Partnership, a private company contracted to manage WIP operations, have not required the scans for employees and are calling for outside help. We will keep following this story. The other nuclear-related major story in the United States is that a crack has been found in a dam in Washington State, which is just upriver from the Hanford site. The crack in the Wanapum Dam measures two inches wide and approximately 65 feet in length, and it appeared in a spillway that allows surplus water to escape the dam. To reduce pressure on the structure, water levels are being lowered 20 feet. Officials have said, quote, there's no threat to the public. But at the same time, Grant County authorities have activated an emergency response plan, and the failure risk was high enough that they needed to officially start notifying other government agencies and downstream water users. That's where Hanford comes into play, as the site is filled with pits of transuranic waste that could be at risk. And here's the further irony. Hanford sends some of its transuranic waste to WIP. Word from our source was that there was talk of changing the labeling on high-level radioactive waste at Hanford so that it could get shipped to WIP, which only accepts low-level waste. Now all that waste is stuck at Hanford, and there's a dam only 40 miles upstream with a 2-inch crack that goes 65 feet across. Oi, Gewalt. Two Hawaiian state Senate committees have passed a bill calling for the Hawaii Department of Health to launch a pilot project to monitor radiation levels for five years. Senate Bill 3049 has received some lawmakers' support, despite opposition from state health officials. They must be dyslexic when it comes to their job description as to what they're supposed to do. Senator Russell Rutterman, who co-sponsored the bill, said there's a question whether the kind of monitoring being done now is sufficient for the kinds of threats faced by the public from the Fukushima fallout. Dr. Daniel P. Aldrich, associate professor and university faculty scholar at Purdue University, said, We had scientists in Hawaii tracking the radiation in the water, and yes, some fish off the coast of America and, of course, near Hawaii, have had high levels of cesium. If activists can't shut down nuclear power plants, it looks like the economy will. Babcock and Wilcox can't find a buyer for a majority stake in its Generation M Power joint venture for designing and manufacturing the proposed small modular nuclear reactors. 
Oh, poor Babcock and Wilcox, designers and builders of the nuclear reactor that had the partial meltdown at Three Mile Island. The company announced just three months ago that it wanted to find a new majority owner and sell down to a 10 to 20 percent share of the project. But investment bank J.P. Morgan has been unable to find a majority buyer at acceptable terms. In early February, Westinghouse Electric Company announced that it was backing off of its plans to design and build a rival reactor. Whoops! There goes the nuclear renaissance! Otherwise known as the rats are leaving the sinking ship. And Exelon Corporation executives and lobbyists have told lawmakers in Illinois and other interested parties that three of the six nuclear reactors Exelon operates in that state are at risk of shutting down because they're unprofitable. Exelon has privately said in recent weeks that its Byron nuclear plant in northwest Illinois, Quad Cities in western Illinois, and downstate Clinton plant are all in danger of being shut down. Oh, poor widow Exelon can't make money off your nukes, so shut them down. Exelon declined to make any executives available for an interview, and a spokesmodel refused to answer questions about imperiled plants or possible state remedies. So much for nuclear transparency. Over to Japan, where Asahi Shimbun reports that radioactive cesium of mind-boggling, that's their term, mind-boggling 370,000 becquerels per kilogram of soil has been detected in the mud of Miyotoishi Reservoir in Fukushima Prefecture, only 34 miles from Fukushima Daiichi. The Environment Ministry says it has no plans to dredge the reservoirs to remove the contaminated mud, to which Japan Times says the Health Ministry is in denial about the existence of problems. Japan's agriculture minister said last Friday that rockfish caught off the coast of Fukushima Prefecture showed 110 becquerels of cesium per kilogram. Japan's limit is the absurdly high 100 becquerels per kilogram, so this is over the line. The fishing cooperative in Iwake City, Fukushima Prefecture, was surprised as they did not expect to find radiation in the fish. The cooperative currently releases onto the market 33 types of fish gathered off the coast of Fukushima, which have been cleared and deemed safe by a committee which wants to restart the shipping of fish from Fukushima. The surprise comes because rockfish did not show any signs of radiation last year when the cooperative scanned it, and the next highest level detected was 72 becquerels per kilogram in 2012. That means that radiation exposure for the fish off the coast of Japan is going up. And now for Japan's very own Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed None that's out of week According to pro-nuke support organization World Nuclear News, a novel study puts Fukushima doses into perspective. And the reason they call it a novel study is because a novel is a work of fiction. The newly published study of radiation doses received by Fukushima residents has concluded that most people in the prefecture are unlikely to receive doses significantly different to normal background radiation levels as a result of the accident. I wonder what they've been smoking. 
The actual syntax of this report is too taxing a sin to go into in detail, but I wish to counter it with this further information from Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. He said in an interview with Radio New Zealand, We found a particle in a vacuum cleaner bag 300 kilometers from the accident. The particle is microscopic and is emitting 200 disintegrations per second. In other words, the equivalent of 200 x-rays every second are coming off this microscopic particle. I am very afraid of internal contamination far away from the reactors. About a year and a half ago, I came up with there'd be somewhere on the order of 100,000 to a million cancers as a result. Rachel Clark, originally from Japan, who is an interpreter for 150 Hibakusha delegates, those are survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was at a United Nations NPT conference. She said, After one year of the March 11 earthquake, 40% of local children had some kind of thyroid abnormality, which is four to five times faster than what happened to children in Chernobyl. Infant death is increasing steadily, and this is a comparison of the year 2010 and the year 2011. The cause, in terms of cancer and leukemia, is increased significantly. Heart disease almost doubled. Infection and pneumonia also increased. So worldnuclearnews.org and your heinous little study on radiation doses, we dub thee evil numbnuts and make you this week's nuclear hot seat. Numbnuts out a week! Back to the news. In Tokyo... Hundreds rallied this past Saturday to protest a decision by prosecutors to drop charges over the Fukushima nuclear meltdowns. No one has been indicted, let alone punished, nearly three years after the calamity was ruled man-made. Official records do not list anyone as having died as a direct result of radioactive fallout, which ignores the plight of Masao Yoshida, the brave manager at the Fukushima Daiichi plant who stayed behind when the accident first happened, and with the others of the Fukushima 50, probably saved the world. Yoshida died on July 9th of 2013 of esophageal cancer. Also excluded from the records are Fukushima residents who committed suicide, owing to fears about the fallout showered on their hometowns, while others died during the evacuation process. Official data released last week showed that 1,656 people have already died in the prefecture from stress and other illnesses related to the nuclear crisis. So no charges, no trials against anyone connected with TEPCO and the disaster. Who is Japan going after? Journalist Mari Takanuchi. We've covered this story before, but we need to bring it forward yet again. She is facing charges stemming from speaking out on radiation in Japan and advocacy for families relocating children out of areas contaminated by radioactivity. She said it is well established that the greatest hazard from radiation comes when children are exposed, raising the risk of cancer many-fold over their entire lives. We'll have a link to the petition in support of Mari Takanushi up on the website nuclearhotseat.com slash blog under episode number 141. Before we get to this week's featured interview, I want to thank those of you who purchased my nuclear memoir, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. The book launched last Thursday on Amazon Kindle, 
And because of your support, those of you who bought it last Thursday, it became number one Amazon Kindle bestseller in my category for three days in a row. At its peak, the book was ranked just over 10000 for all Kindle purchases that day. That's of over one million titles. Very cool. And my gratitude to those of you who have already posted your five-star reviews. It's gratifying to know that you support my work, and I want you to know that the ebook is not going away. It's alive and well and ready for you to purchase and read if you haven't done so already. Go to Amazon. You can either enter my name or Yes, I Glow in the Dark, and you will find it. I also have a preview excerpt available on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. Just look for the big yellow box and follow the prompts. That will get you a PDF that takes me from landing at Harrisburg Airport five days before the Three Mile Island nuclear accident began to being trapped in my friend's house after evacuation was announced via bullhorn. After you've read that, I defy you to not want to read what comes after. As always, thanks for your support. Now on to the featured interview. Yesterday, March 3rd, the World Business Academy, located in Santa Barbara, California, released the Nuclear Power Health Impact Study they commissioned from Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health Project. It details the harmful effects of routine radioactive emissions from the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, emissions that are legally permissible by the EPA and the NRC. Dr. Jerry Brown, no relationship to the California governor, is director of the Safe Energy Project for World Business Academy. Previously, he has served in executive roles with a variety of public policy organization and is co-author of two books, including Profiles in Power, The Anti-Nuclear Movement, and The Dawn of the Solar Age. He joins us for Nuclear Hot Seat Exclusive on the content and implications of the new report. Dr. Jerry Brown, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Brown, please tell us something about your organization, the World Business Academy, and what your position is within it. The World Business Academy for many years has been a think tank and a connection point for business leaders who would like to take uh, responsibility for the entire planet, who would like to work on the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. We have many distinguished fellows in the organization, such as visionaries like Deepak Chopra, Barbara Marks Hubbard in the evolutionary area, some of the world's energy gurus like Emery Lovins and uh, Lester Brown. And in the last year, we decided with the breakdown of the San Onofre plant to move from writing and thinking and papers to action. So in that context, I became the director of the Safe Energy Project for the World Business Academy. Explain to us what the Safe Energy Project is, what your goals are, and how you go about it. The goals of the Safe Energy Project are threefold. One, to close down the San Onofre nuclear power plant, which occurred due to the pressure of many public interest groups back in June of 2013 and to recoup $1.5 billion that the owners of this nuclear plant, Southern California Edison, want to charge the ratepayers for not producing electricity since the plant first closed back in January of 2012. So our first goal was to close the plant and to recoup the funds. So you're halfway there. Yes. And the second goal is to 
work with a coalition of national and local groups to close out the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, probably the most dangerously sited plant in the United States. That's our second goal. And this uh, health study provides further reasons among many why this plant is a risk to the health and safety of the population. And then the third goal on where do we go from there is to accelerate the transition to a 100% non-nuclear, non-fossil fuel renewable energy future in California as quickly as possible within the next 10 years, while also accelerating the commercialization of hydrogen fuel cells into the energy system. It's great that you're not just against nuclear, but that you're also working to move us into an energy future that we can live with that is sustainable. Now, you're here because the World Business Academy has just released the first ever in-depth zip code study of emissions from the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Clarify for the listeners where the plant is located and when it came online. The Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which is owned and operated by Pacific Gas and Electric, came online in the two units came online in 1984 and 1985, respectively. The plant is located at Avila Beach, California, near the city of San Luis Obispo, about three hours drive north of Los Angeles. The plant was sited originally on multiple earthquake faults, and in recent years, three new major faults have been discovered. It has been concluded that the plant is out of compliance with its license. In other words, it was not built to withstand the potential ground motion that these earthquake faults could represent. That's just, I, I, I continue to be stunned at the stupidity and short-sightedness of the nuclear industry. There are other problems with the facility as well up at Diablo Canyon. Can you talk about the age of the reactors and some of the other problems that it faces? Since it's been around for a while, as with many of the reactors in this country, it's gone through corrosion, which can cause leaks in the steam generators. The steam generators in both units were replaced. The reactor vessel heads were replaced. So you have a history of aging reactors, corrosion, possible radiation leaks. In addition, and I think this is the point that most people, even people who are aware of nuclear power issues, uh, may not realize that the EPA set standard for and the NRC, the EPA being the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allows all U.S. operating reactors, the 100 remaining operating reactors, to routinely release amounts of liquid and airborne radiation from these plants. So you not only have the accidental releases, the worst, worst cases of a Chernobyl or a Fukushima uh, near meltdown at Three Mile Island, and then many, many accidents that uh, your listeners may have heard about. But you also have the routine accumulation of low-level ionizing radiation in the environment, most affecting people who live within a 100 miles of any of our nuclear power plants, which represents most of the people in this country. What your organization has done is bring in Joe Mangano, who's a good friend of this podcast. We've interviewed him many times before, the epidemiologist, to go over data and try to come up with a final report, which is what you have, on the actual impact 
of Diablo Canyon and the local population. So first, tell us something of Joe Mangano's methodology for putting together this report. The most important thing to recognize is Mangano, Joe Mangano, who has uh, very well known as an epidemiologist. He has over 30 articles on radiation and health published in scientific and medical journals and letters to the editor in journals like Lancet, British Medical Journal, and others. He has three books on the topic, and so he's done a lot of work in this field. The second thing is that the data that Joe uses is available to any citizen who knows how to find it and to work with it. All of this data is health data, cancer incidence data, death rates, low birth weight, that is published either by the Centers for Disease Control or the state of California and the state of California Cancer Registry. So the data that Joe uses are public record official data. The thing that he's been able to do with them is to analyze them by zip code. Now, California may be the only or possibly one of the few states in the country that provides this kind of health cancer rate data by zip code. So Joe was able to do a in-depth analysis of what happened to cancer rates and other health patterns before Diablo Canyon opened and in the decades after Diablo Canyon was up and operating. And also, how have these patterns changed among the people who live closest to the reactor, say within 15 miles from the reactor, as opposed to those who live farther away from the reactor, including where I'm located in Santa Barbara, about 90 miles away from the reactor. What did this report find? In the broadest sense, it found that from the period before Diablo Canyon opened, before the mid-1980s, to these decades after Diablo Canyon opened, it went from a relatively low cancer county to a high cancer county. There were increases significant increases in breast cancer, in thyroid cancer, soaring rates of melanoma, increases in all kinds of age-adjusted cancers, increases in infant and childhood cancer. In addition, other indicators of public health, and one of the sad aspects of this research is that children and infants in the fetus are the canaries in the mine shaft. As we know, that the infant, the fetus, the child are more susceptible to any kind of drug. We have adult aspirin, we have childhood aspirin, any kind of toxin, any kind of carcinogen than adults are. So whereas the time between exposure and the actual detection of a cancer could be years, maybe even decades in an adult, it can be very quick in a child. So what we've also seen is the occurrence of infant mortality, increasing rates of infants dying within the first month of birth, and also increases in numbers of very low birth weight babies. So we see both cancer rates going up, and we see other health patterns being affected. It's stunning because this is information that was available if anyone bothered to look at it, And it sounds like until this report, until the World Business Academy hired Joe Mangano to do this analysis, nobody was even looking for this stance. Is that accurate? I can't say that because I would not know if the EPA or the nuclear industry has ever looked at these stats. They certainly do not want to acknowledge these statistics. They're preferred. 
the kind of response they usually make is trying to shoot the messenger to discredit a noted health researcher like Joe Mangano. But the fact here is that Dave Lockbaum, a very well-respected nuclear engineer who directs the Union of Concerned Scientists Nuclear Safety Project, he is one of many experts who reviewed and commented on the report. And Lockbaum's comment was stunning to me because I had never heard of it before. He said, when the nuclear industry first started extending the license of reactors by some 20 years, he asked them if they were doing any health studies. And to his amazement, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, replied, health studies are not within our scope. So this, this, you know, the agency that's supposed to be responsible for risk management and will give you reams and reams of studies on the one in 10 billion or the one in 10 million reactor years that an accident could possibly happen does not do health studies. I think the reason is because there is such an accumulation of data linking known carcinogens, radioactive isotopes with cancer that if ever one study broke into national awareness and was reviewed and established that said these reactors are causing cancer in children and adults and contributing to America's vast cancer epidemic, that would be the end of the nuclear industry. I can't contradict you in that because all it's going to take is public awareness to turn this around. That's my belief. Let's move on to the problem with strontium-90 in baby teeth, which was a very large political factor in the signing of the nuclear test bomb treaty by President Kennedy. As a background for that, I want to just point out one very critical issue related to human exposure to low levels of ionizing radiation. The nuclear industry loves to say that the emissions that we do are permissible. Permissible, the fact that the NRC allows them, that the EPA sets standards, does not mean that they are safe. And the very prestigious National Academy of Sciences, through its distinguished panel on the biological effects of ionizing radiation, the BR7 report, concluded this. All of the data support a linear, no-threshold risk model that the risk of cancer proceeds in a linear fashion at lower dosages without a threshold, and that the smallest dose has the potential to cause a small increase in risk to humans. What is that saying? It's saying there's no safe exposure to these known carcinogens. Now, in a fission reaction, over you know nearly a 100 different isotopes are produced, and they go into different areas of the body, coming around to your strontium-90 issue. Plutonium goes to the genitals, radioactive iodine, iodine-131 goes to the thyroid. Um, Cesium-137, which we've heard a lot about out of Fukushima, goes into the soft tissue. And strontium-90, which the body interprets as calcium, is taken in to the bones and into the teeth. And so scientists are able to collect baby teeth, the teeth that fall out, uh, put them through a scintillation counter and find out what is the level of radioactivity there, either measured in Becquerel's or in picocuries per gram calcium. During the Cold War, during the big above-ground bomb testing of the 1950s and the 1960s, when the United States and the former Soviet Union were exploding massive tonnage of weapons in the atmosphere, the Geiger counters were going off the charts at universities. 
And so at that time, and it might be hard to believe in today's political environment, the United States Public Health Service funded a baby tea study that was conducted by the University of Washington in St. Louis. And Barry Commoner and other scientists were involved in it. What they found was strontium-90, which had been non-detectable in the environment before the first Alamogordo and atomic bomb test, went up, 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 up 50-fold during the Cold War years. And at the same time, leukemia and childhood cancer were increasing. Kennedy, who had lost children, was aware of this data. Khrushchev was hearing the very same thing from Sakharov, the father of the Soviet H-bomb. We're poisoning our own people with these above-ground tests. So at the height of the Cold War, Kennedy and Khrushchev and the UK reached through the Iron Curtain and they signed in 1963 the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which stopped and prohibited all above-ground testing, all underwater testing, and allowed for the military underground testing. Now, one would think, and in the baby teeth that were collected by Joe Mangano's organization, the Radiation and Public Health Projects, and you can find all their data at radiation.org, radiation.org, you would think that strontium-90 would again fall off to non-detectable. But the Radiation and Public Health Project did a second baby teeth study, and what they found was a surprising rise in strontium-90, and starting in the 1970s, when you see the aggressive commercialization of nuclear power, I mean, we had our first nuclear plant back in Shippingport, Pennsylvania in the mid-50s, but the real broad commercialization of nuclear power happens in the 1970s, and that's where the strontium-90 levels off, and now it's increasing through the 1980s, through the 1990s, and expected to be back to Cold War bomb test levels if those trends continued. In other words, through nuclear power and the routine emissions of radioactivity from nuclear power plants, we will have undermined all of the health effects of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963. What about the strontium-90 levels that are shown in the current report? In the current report, this was from baby teeth that were collected in that uh, second baby teeth study, was that In the counties of San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara County, which is right to the south and adjacent to San Luis Obispo, there was a 30% greater level of strontium-90 than in all other California baby teeth. So these are the counties closest to the reactor. And throughout the state of California, strontium-90s had been increasing so that by the 1990s, they were 50% higher, the strontium-90 levels in the baby teeth than they were in the 1980s. Most of the data that Joe has put together in this report shows a correlation. You know, uh, here are the reactors. Here's what happens after the reactors. The strontium-90 study is the only physical evidence that we have of radiation changes and levels within children's baby teeth. With the report that you just released yesterday, March 3rd, what other variations showed up in the statistics? Just let me say that our full report, the executive summary, the expert comment, is available on our website, worldbusiness.org. So basically, what this found was that in the nine zip codes within 15 miles or right downwind from the plant was where the most dramatic impacts took place. So after Diablo Canyon began operating, there were significant increases in thyroid and female breast cancer, particularly in those zip codes. 
after Diablo Canyon begins operating in the mid-80s, uh, significant increases in infant mortality, that is in the number of infants who die in the first year. After Diablo Canyon begins operating, childhood and adolescent cancer deaths rose rapidly, as did melanoma incidents, which went from below the state level to 130% above the state of California incidents in that particular period. And also what happens is the very low birth weight. These are infants born below three pounds, four ounces, rose to be 45% higher in the nine zip codes surrounding Diablo Canyon than in the more distant zip codes. Again, the word stunning comes to mind with all of this. What should our takeaway be from this research, initially dealing with Diablo Canyon and then by extrapolation to any of the 100 functioning nuclear reactors still in operation in the United States? I think the takeaways are this is another reason why the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant presents not a distant but an imminent risk to the health and safety of the residents living in San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara County. This is one of several reasons why Diablo Canyon should be closed. One, it is a health risk. Number two, it is a seismic risk. The Union of Concerned Scientists put out a very important report called Seismic Shift, where they detailed all of the earthquake faults, some of them 2,000 feet away from the reactors themselves. They pointed out that NRC inspectors had said that the plant is out of compliance with its operating license. They said there is a one in six chance in every year that the plant is in operation, that it could have a major earthquake, which the plant is not designed to handle. So there's seismic risk. The third is marine life. Due to the fact that these plants do not work off cooling towers, but they take their cooling water in from sea water, 80% of all marine life destroyed by power plants, not only nuclear, but fossil fuel power plants through water use on the coast of California, 80% of that marine life is destroyed right there at Diablo Canyon on the intake. And then when they let out the heated water into the ocean, it also has a negative impact on marine life. The fourth reason is Diablo Canyon is not necessary to the electrical supply of the state of California. And the California independent system operator who's responsible on a minute to second level for the operation of the entire electrical grid in California in their 2013-2014 transmission report said Diablo Canyon is not essential to the provision of electricity in California. They have enough excess capacity that if Diablo Canyon were removed, the system could operate. They have 30% reserve margin and the nuclear is in addition and above that. So in summary, for health reasons, for earthquake risk, for marine life security, and for the fact that it is not essential, there is no reason why we have to have this Fukushima-like potential right here on the west coast of California. These are the reasons why Diablo Canyon should be closed. And that's the takeaway for the Diablo Canyon plant. And there are insights for America's other nuclear reactors to be gained from this study. This is a crucial piece of evidence that needs to get out. How are you spreading word about this? 
What we are doing is we're holding public information sessions here and in San Luis Obispo, here being in Santa Barbara, and in San Luis Obispo. We are releasing this report to the media, to the County Board of Supervisors, to PG&E, to county health officials, and we hope that the media will pick up this report and distribute it widely and will not be fooled or cowed by the nuclear industry or the arm of the nuclear industry, the Washington, D.C.-based Nuclear Energy Institute, which is the trade association for the nuclear industry, which will try to smear Joe Mangano, which will try to dismiss the results and say, oh, we, we have safe, permissible levels, and will not deal with the content of this report. This is what we believe the takeaways are, because they have implications for every nuclear power plant in the United States, and for looking at what Rachel Carson said way back in 1962, when she identified strontium-90 as the sinister silent partner of all other pesticides and herbicides and toxins in our environment, as one of the dangers to human health, that this is a contributing factor to our national cancer epidemic, and that another reason why we should do what Germany has done in the wake of Fukushima, make a plan to phase out all of our nuclear power and move towards 100% renewable energy, which is well within our grasp technologically and economically. If people wish to contact you and get a copy of the report and support the work of the World Business Academy, where can they go to gain more information and to be in touch? They can go to our website, www.worldbusiness.org www.worldbusiness.org You will find the full report the executive summary of the report the experts who have endorsed the report Joe Mangano's resume all posted on the website and there are places available on the website where you can contact us to get involved with and support the Safe Energy Project This is powerful information and so necessary to our cause. I want to thank you, Dr. Jerry Brown, for the work that you have done and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure, and thank you for helping get the word out on these vital national issues. That's what I live for. Dr. Jerry Brown, Director of the Safe Energy Project of the World Business Academy. For free downloadable copies of the Nuclear Power Health Impact Study, go to worldbusiness.org. We will also have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 141. So hey, if you like Nuclear Hot Seat, buy us a cup of coffee. I'm talking about a Frappuccino. Not that I want the coffee. Take the cost of that Frappuccino and instead send the money to Nuclear Hot Seat so I can keep this work going and growing. John Stewart, you have been using the word nuclear in proper context in recent weeks. Have I been getting to you? Energetically, at least? How about this? Get your Fukushima report together because it's next Tuesday, dude. Whether you call me for it or not, do it. And now here's Radcast. This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report. Radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, March 4th, 2014. We're on a big hold right now regarding info and updates from the Waste Isolation Pilot Project in Carlsbad, New Mexico, but we do know that Senator Tom Udall, Democrat from New Mexico, said he will send the EPA a letter on Thursday 
requesting that they bring portable air monitors to the area. But remember, they also need to do extensive soil testing around the site. In Fukushima radiation news, we are seeing elevated readings in the region of Billings, Montana, with counts per minute staying steady between averages of 75 to just over 100 CPM. On the EPA graph, Billings hit 725 CPM on February 28th. Something's going on in Montana. We are assuming that with all of the snowfall, it is radiation fallout from Fukushima. In the RADCAST report for today, we're seeing fluctuating activity in the northwest ranging from 28 to 34 counts per minute in the Portland area into the western part of Washington state as well. From San Francisco into northern California, we're seeing elevated readings averaging in the low to mid 40s in the counts per minute. This is probably due, again, to radiation fallout from the jet stream with all of the rain that California's been getting over the last week. In Newfoundland, Canada, we're seeing extremely high numbers and averages, 65 counts per minute in Newfoundland, Canada. Salisbury, Massachusetts and Chicopee, Massachusetts are also high, averaging 40 and 37 counts per minute. Farmington, Minnesota, 34 counts per minute. St. Paul, Minnesota, 32 counts per minute. And if you'd like to see more numbers on the RADCAST readings, please go to radcast.org. Thank you for listening to the RADCAST report on Nuclear Hot Seat. Here's the week's final thought, and it's that next week, Nuclear Hot Seat will devote the entire program to voices from Fukushima. Politicians, activists, show business figures, nuclear refugees, people of Japan or working with the Japanese people on nuclear issues were each given three to five minutes to tell us what they think we need to know and have not been hearing about what's happening in that country. I invite you to listen and to share it because it's one of the most powerful and touching nuclear hot seats I've ever been privileged to produce. My co-producer for this program will be Beverly Finlay Kaneka. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 4, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, the Carlsbad Current Argus, Common Dreams, Arnie Gunderson, and Fairwinds.org, Reuters, Seattle Times, Radcast.org, Honolulu Star Advertiser, BizJournals.com, ChicagoBusiness.com, Asahi Shimbun, Japan Times, Voice of Russia, World Nuclear News, <laughs> NHK, NuclearNews.net, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Special shout-out to Carl Grossman, who wrote a great article on Fukushima for Counterpunch and Informable.com. In it, he cites Nuclear Hot Seat number 118 from September 17, 2013. It's my interview with Allison Katz of Independent WHO. Thanks, Carl. We love you, too. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. We are also up on Nuclear Hot Seat videos on YouTube, so please subscribe. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You can reuse this material as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever and Fukushima is still leaking and probably will be forever. So we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.